Hello, friends of the podcast, and welcome back to Inconceivable Media. I'm your host, Cam, and today we will finish the novella Who Goes There in preparation for our discussion on the film The Thing later this week. Chapter 9 Bar, call back those men before they tell Blair, McCready said quietly. Barkley went to the door. Faintly, his shouts came back to the tensely silent men in the room. Then he was back. They're coming, he said. I didn't tell them why, just that Dr. Copper said not to go. McCready, Gary sighed, you're in command now. May God help you. I cannot. The bronze giant nodded slowly, his deep eyes on Commander Gary. I may be the one, Gary added. I know I'm not, but I cannot prove it to you in any way. Dr. Copper's test has broken down. The fact that he showed it was useless when it was to the advantage of the monster to have that uselessness not known would seem to prove he was human. Copper rocked back and forth slowly on the bunk. I know I'm human. I can't prove it either. One of us, too, is a liar, for that test cannot lie, and it says one of us is. I gave proof that the test was wrong, which seems to prove I'm human, and now Gary has given that argument which proves me human, which he, as the monster, should not do. Round and round and round and round and... Dr. Copper's head, then his neck and shoulders began circling slowly in time to the words. Suddenly, he was lying back on the bunk, roaring with laughter. It doesn't have to prove one of us is a monster. It doesn't have to prove that at all. <laughs> if we're all monsters, it works the same. We're all monsters, all of us. Connet and Gary and I and all of you. McCready, Van Wall, the blonde-bearded chief pilot, called softly. You were on the way to an MD when you took up meteorology, weren't you? Can you make some kind of test? McCready went over to Copper slowly, took the hypodermic from his hand, and washed it carefully in 95% alcohol. Gary sat on the bunk edge with wooden face, watching Copper and McCready expressionlessly. What Copper said is possible, McCready sighed. Van Wall, will you help here? Thanks. The filled needle jabbed into Copper's thigh. The man's laughter did not stop, but slowly faded into sobs, then sound sleep as the morphium took hold. McCready turned again. The men who had started for Blair stood at the far end of the room, skis dripping snow, their faces as white as their skis. Connet had a lighted cigarette in each hand, one he was puffing absently and staring at the floor. The heat of the one in his left hand attracted him, and he stared at it and the one in the other hand stupidly for a moment. He dropped one and crushed it under his heel slowly. Dr. Copper, McCready repeated, could be right. I know I'm human, but of course can't prove it. I'll repeat the test for my own information. Any of you others who wish to may do the same. Two minutes later, McCready held a test tube with white precipitins setting slowly from straw-colored serum. It reacts to human blood, too, so they aren't both monsters. I didn't think they were, Van Wall sighed. That wouldn't suit the monster either. We could have destroyed them if we knew. Why hasn't the monster destroyed us, do you suppose? It seems to be loose. <laughs> McCready snorted and laughed softly. Elementary, my dear Watson. The monster wants to have life forms available. It cannot animate a dead body, apparently. It is just waiting waiting until the best opportunities come. We who remain human, it is holding in reserve. Kinner shuddered violently. Hey, hey, Mac, Mac, would I know if I was a monster? Would I know if the monster had already got me? Oh, Lord, I may be a monster already. You'd know, McCready answered. But we wouldn't, Norris laughed shortly, half hysterically. McCready looked at the vial of serum remaining. There's one thing this damn stuff is good for at that, he said thoughtfully. Clark, will you and Van help me? The rest of the gang better stick together here. Keep an eye on each other, he said bitterly. See that you don't get into mischief, shall we say. McCready started down the tunnel toward Dogtown, with Clark and Van Wall behind him. You need more serum? Clark asked. McCready shook his head. Tests. There's four cows and a bull and nearly 70 dogs down there. 
This stuff reacts only to human blood and monsters. McCready came back to the ad building and went silently to the washstand. Clark and Van Wall joined him a moment later. Clark's lips had developed a tick, jerking into sudden, unexpected sneers. What did you do? Condit exploded suddenly. More immunizing? Clark snickered and stopped with a hiccup. Immunizing. Ha <laughs> ha. Immune, all right. That monster, said Van Wall steadily, is quite logical. Our immune dog was quite all right, and we drew a little more serum for the tests, but we won't make any more. Can't, uh, can't you use one man's blood or another dog? Norris began. There aren't, said McCready softly, any more dogs, nor cattle, I might add. No more dogs? Benning sat down slowly. They're very nasty when they start changing, Van Wall said precisely, but slow. That electrocution iron you made up, Barkley, is very fast. There is only one dog left, our immune. The monster left that for us so we could play with our little test. The rest... He shrugged and dried his hands. The cattle, gulped Kinner. Also, reacted very nicely. They look funny as hell when they start melting. The beast hasn't any quick escape when it's tied in dog chains or halters, and it had to be to imitate. Kinner stood up slowly. His eyes darted around the room and came to rest horribly quivering on a tin bucket in the galley. Slowly, step by step, he retreated toward the door, his mouth opening and closing silently like a fish out of water. The milk, he gasped. I milked him an hour ago. His voice broke into a scream as he dived through the door. He was out on the ice cap without windproof or heavy clothing. Van Wall looked after him for a moment thoughtfully. He's probably hopelessly mad, he said at length, but he might be a monster escaping. He hasn't skis. Take a blowtorch, in case. The physical motion of the chase helped them, something that needed doing. Three of the other men were quietly being sick. Norris was lying flat on his back, his face greenish, looking steadily at the bottom of the bunk above him. Mac, how long have the cows been not cows? McCready shrugged his shoulders hopelessly. He went over to the milk bucket and with his little tube of serum went to work on it. The milk clouded it, making certainty difficult. Finally, he dropped the test tube in the stand and shook his head. It tests negatively which means either they were cows then, or that, being perfect imitations, they gave perfectly good milk. Copper stirred restless in his sleep and gave a gurgling cross between a snore and a laugh. Silent eyes fastened on him. Would Morphia... a monster... somebody started to ask. Lord knows, McCready shrugged. It affects every earthly animal I know of. Conant suddenly raised his head. Mac! The dogs must have swallowed pieces of the monster, and the pieces destroyed them. The dogs were where the monster resided. I was locked up. Doesn't that prove... Van Wall shook his head. Sorry, proves nothing about what you are, only proves what you didn't do. It doesn't do that, McCready sighed. We are helpless because we don't know enough, and so jittery we don't think straight. Locked up? Ever watch a white corpuscle of the blood go through the wall of a blood vessel? No? It sticks out a pseudopod, and there it is on the far side of the wall. Oh, said Van Wall unhappily. The cattle tried to melt down, didn't they? They could have melted down, become just a thread of stuff, and leaked under a door to recollect on the other side. Ropes, no, no, that wouldn't do it. They couldn't live in a sealed tank, or if, said McCready, you shoot it through the heart and it doesn't die... It's a monster. That's the best test I can think of offhand. No dogs, said Gary quietly, and no cattle. It has to imitate men now, and locking up doesn't do any good. Your test might have worked, Mac, but I'm afraid it would be hard on the men. Chapter 10 Clark looked up from the galley stove as Van Wall, Barkley, McCready, and Benning came in, brushing the drift from their clothes. The other men jammed into the ad building continued studiously to do as they were doing, playing chess, poker, reading. Ralson was fixing a sledge on the table. 
Van and Norris had their heads together over magnetic data, while Harvey read tables in a low voice. Dr. Copper snored softly on the bunk. Gary was working with Dutton over a sheaf of radio messages on the corner of Dutton's bunk and a small fraction of the radio table. Conant was using most of the table for cosmic ray sheets. Quite plainly through the corridor, despite two closed doors, they could hear Kinner's voice. Clark banged a kettle onto the galley stove and beckoned McCready silently. The meteorologist went over to him. I don't mind the cooking so damn much, Clark said nervously, but isn't there some way to stop that bird? We all agreed that it would be safe to move him into Cosmos House. Kinner? McCready nodded toward the door. I'm afraid not. I can dope him, I suppose, but we don't have an unlimited supply of morphia, and he's not in danger of losing his mind, just hysterical. Well, we're in danger of losing ours. You've been out for an hour and a half. That's been going on steadily ever since, and it was going for two hours before. There's a limit, you know. Gary wandered over slowly, apologetically. For an instant, McCready caught the feral spark of fear, horror, in Clark's eyes, and knew at the same instant it was in his own. Gary, Gary or Copper, was certainly a monster. If you could stop that, I think it would be a sound policy, Mac, Gary spoke quietly. There are tensions enough in this room. We agreed that it would be safe for Kinner in there because everyone else in the camp is under constant eyeing. Gary shivered slightly, and try, try in God's name to find some test that will work. McCready sighed. Watch or unwatched, everyone's tense. Blair's jammed the trap so it won't open now. Says he's got food enough and keeps screaming, Go away! Go away! You're monsters! I won't be absorbed! I won't! I'll tell men when they come! Go away! So we went away. There's no other test, Gary pleaded. McCready shrugged his shoulders. Copper was perfectly right. The serum test would be absolutely definitive if it hadn't been contaminated. But that's the only dog left, and he's fixed now. Chemicals? Chemical tests? McCready shook his head. Our chemistry isn't that good. I tried the microscope, you know. Gary nodded. Monster dog and real dog were identical. But you've got to go on. What are we going to do after dinner? Van Wall joined them quietly. Rotation sleeping. Half the crowd asleep, half awake. I wonder how many of us are monsters. All the dogs were. We thought we were safe, but somehow it got copper or you. Van Wall's eyes flashed uneasily. It may have gotten every one of you, all of you, but myself may be wondering, looking, no, no, that's not possible. You just spring then. I'd be helpless. We humans might somehow have the greater number now, but he stopped. McCready laughed shortly. <laughs> You're doing what Norris complained of in me, leaving it hanging. But if one more is changed, that may shift the balance of power. It doesn't fight. I don't think it ever fights. It must be a peaceable thing in its own inimitable way. It never had to because it always gained its end otherwise. Panwall's mouth twisted in a sickly grin. You're suggesting then that perhaps it already has the greater numbers, but is just waiting, waiting, all of them, all of you for all I know, waiting till I, the last human, drop my wariness and sleep. Mac, did you notice their eyes all looking at us? Gary sighed. You haven't been sitting here for four straight hours while all their eyes silently weighed the information that one of us two, Copper or I, is a monster, certainly. Perhaps both of us. Clark repeated his request. Will you stop that bird's noise? He's driving me nuts. Make him tone down, anyway. Still praying? McCready asked. Still praying, Clark groaned. He hasn't stopped for a second. I don't mind his praying if it relieves him, but he yells, he sings psalms and hymns and shouts prayers. He thinks God can't hear well way down here. Maybe he can't, Barkley grunted. Or he'd have done something about this thing loosed from hell. Somebody's going to try that test you mentioned if you don't stop him, 
Clark stated grimly. I think a cleaver in the head would be as positive a test as a bullet in the heart. Go ahead with the food. I'll see what I can do. There may be something in the cabinets. McCready moved wearily toward the corner Copper had used as his dispensary. Three tall cabinets of rough boards, two locked, were the repositories of the camp's medical supplies. Twelve years ago, McCready had graduated, had started for an internship, and been diverted to meteorology. Copper was a picked man, a man who knew his profession, thoroughly and modernly. More than half the drugs available were totally unfamiliar to McCready. Many of the others he had forgotten. There was no huge medical library here, no series of journals available to learn the things he had forgotten, the elementary simple things to copper, things that did not merit inclusion in the small library he had been forced to content himself with. Books are heavy, and every ounce of supplies had been freighted in by air. McCready picked a barbiturate, hopefully. Barclay and Van went with him. One man never went anywhere alone in Big Magnet. Ralston had his sledge put away, and the physicists had moved off the table. The poker game broken up when they got back. Clark was putting out the food. The click of spoons and the muffled sounds of eating were the only sign of life in the room. There were no words spoken as the three returned. Simply all eyes focused on them questioningly, while the jaw moved methodically. McCready stiffened suddenly. Kinner was screeching out at him in a hoarse, cracked voice. He looked wearily at Van Wall with a twisted grin and shook his head. Ha ha. Van Wall cursed bitterly and sat down at the table. We'll just plumb have to take that till his voice wears out. He can't yell like that forever. He's got a brass throat and a cast iron larynx, Norris declared savagely. Then we could be hopeful and suggest he's one of our friends. In that case, he could go on renewing his throat till doomsday. Silence clamped down. For twenty minutes they ate without a word. Then Connet jumped up with an angry violence. You sat as still as a bunch of graven images. You don't say a word, but oh lord, what expressive eyes you've got. They roll around like a bunch of glass marbles spilling down a table. They wink and blink and stare and whisper things. Can you guys look somewhere else for a change, please? Listen, Mac, you're in charge here. Let's run movies for the rest of the night. We've been saving those reels to make them last. Last for what? Who is it's going to see those last reels, eh? Let's see them while we can and look at something other than each other. Hmm, sound idea, Conant. I, for one, am quite willing to change this in any way I can. Turn the sound up loud, Dutton. Maybe you can drown out the hymns, Clark suggested. But don't... Norris said softly, don't turn off the lights altogether. The lights will be out, McCready shook his head. We'll show all the cartoon movies we have. You won't mind seeing the old cartoons, will you? Goody, goody, a moon picture show. I'm just in the mood. McCready turned to look at the speaker. A lean, lanky New Englander by the name of Caldwell. Caldwell was stuffing his pipe slowly, a sour eye cocked up to McCready. The bronze giant was forced to laugh. <laughs> okay, Bart, you win. Maybe we aren't quite in the mood for Popeye and Trick Ducks, but it's something. Let's play classifications, Caldwell suggested slowly. Or maybe you can call it Guggenheim. You draw lines on a piece of paper and put down classes of things, like animals, you know? One for H and one for U and so on. Like human and unknown, for instance. I think that would be a hell of a lot better game. Classification, I sort of figure, is what we need right now a lot more than movies. Maybe somebody's got a pencil that he can draw lines with. Draw lines between the U animals and the H animals, for instance. McCready's trying to find that kind of pencil, Van Wall answered quietly. But we've got three kinds of animals here, you know. One that begins with M. We don't want any more. Mad ones, you mean? Uh-huh. Clark, I'll help you with those pots so we can get our little peep show going. Caldwell got up slowly. Dutton and Barkley and Benning, in charge of the projector and sound mechanism arrangements, went about their job silently, while the ad building was cleared and the dishes and pans disposed of. McCready drifted over toward Van Wall slowly and leaned back in the bunk beside him. 
I've been wondering, Van, he said with a wry grin, whether or not to report my ideas in advance. I forgot the you animals, as Caldwell named it, could read minds. I've a vague idea of something that might work. It's too vague to bother with, though. Go ahead with your show while I try to figure out the logic of the thing. I'll take this bunk. Van Wall glanced up and nodded. The movie screen would be practically on a line with his bunk, hence making the pictures least distracting here, because least intelligible. Perhaps you should tell us what you have in mind. As it is, only the unknowns know what you plan. You might be unknown before you got it into operation. Won't take long if I get it figured out right. But I don't want any more all-but-the-test-dog-monsters things. We'd better move Copper into his bunk directly above me. He won't be watching the screen either. McCready nodded toward Copper's gently snoring bulk. Gary helped them lift and move the doctor. McCready leaned back against the bunk and sank into a trance, almost, of concentration, trying to calculate chances, operations, methods. He was scarcely aware as the others distributed themselves silently and the screen lit up. Vaguely, Kinner's hectic, shouted prayers and his rasping hymn-singing annoyed him till the sound accompaniment started. The lights were turned out, but the large, light-colored areas of the screen reflected enough light for ready visibility. It made men's eyes sparkle as they moved restlessly. Kinner was still praying, shouting, his voice a raucous accompaniment to the mechanical sound. Dutton stepped up the amplification. So long had the voice been going on that only vaguely at first was McCready aware that something seemed missing. Lying as he was, just across the narrow room, the corridor leading to Cosmo's house, Kinner's voice had reached him fairly clearly, despite the sound accompaniment of the pictures. It struck him abruptly that it had stopped. Dutton, cut that sound, McCready called as he sat up abruptly. The pictures flickered a moment, soundless and strangely futile in the sudden deep silence. The rising wind on the surface above bubbled melancholy tears of sound down the stovepipes. Kinner stopped, McCready said softly. For God's sake, start that sound then. He may have stopped to listen, Nora snapped. McCready rose and went down the corridor. Barclay and Van Wall left their places at the far end of the room to follow him. The flickers bulged and twisted on the back of Barclay's grey underwear as he crossed the still-functioning beam of the projector. Dutton snapped on the lights and the pictures vanished. Norris stood at the door as McCready had asked. Gary sat down quietly in the bunk nearest the door, forcing Clark to make room for him. Most of the others had stayed exactly where they were. Only Conant walked slowly up and down the room in steady, unvarying rhythm. If you're going to do that, Conant, Clark spat, we can get along without you altogether, whether you're human or not. Will you stop that damn rhythm? <sighs> Sorry. The physicist sank down in a bunk and watched his toes thoughtfully. It was almost five minutes, five ages, while the wind made the only sound, before McCready appeared at the door. We, he announced, haven't got enough grief here already. Somebody's tried to help us out. Kinner has a knife in his throat, which was why he stopped singing, probably. We've got monsters, madmen, and murderers. Any more M's you can think of, Caldwell? If there are, we'll probably have them before long. Chapter 11 Is Blair loose? Someone asked. Blair's not loose, or he flew in. If there's any doubt about where our gentle helper came from, this may clear it up. Vanwall held a foot-long, thin-bladed knife in a cloth. The wooden handle was half-burnt, charred with the peculiar pattern of the top of the gallery stove. Clark stared at it. I did that this afternoon. I forgot the damn thing and left it on the stove. Vanwall nodded. I smelled it, if you remember. I knew the knife came from the galley. I wonder, said Benning, looking around at the party warily, how many more monsters have we? If somebody could slip out of his place, go back of the screen to the galley and then down to the Cosmos house and back. He did come back, didn't he? Yes, everybody's here. Well, if the one of the gang could do all that, maybe a monster did it, Gary suggested quietly. There's that possibility. The monster, as you pointed out today, has only men left to imitate. 
Would he decrease his supply, shall we say? Van Wall pointed out. No, we just have a plain, ordinary louse, a murderer to deal with. Ordinarily, we call him an inhuman murderer, I suppose, but we have to distinguish now. We have inhuman murderers, and now we have human murderers. Or one, at least. There's one less human, Norris sighed and turned to Barkley. Bar, will you get your electric gadget? I'm going to make certain. Barkley turned down the corridor to get the pronged electrocutor, while McCready and Van Wall went back toward Cosmos House. Barkley followed them in some thirty seconds. The corridor to Cosmos House twisted, as did nearly all corridors in Big Magnet, and Norris stood at the entrance again. But they heard, rather muffled, McCready's sudden shout. There was a savage scurry of blows, dull thunk schluff sounds. Bar! Bar! And a curious, savage, mewing scream, silence before the quick-moving Norris had reached the bend. Kinner, or what had been Kinner, lay on the floor, cut half in two by the great knife McCready had had. The meteorologist stood against the wall, the knife dripping red in his hand. Van Wall was stirring vaguely on the floor, moaning, his hand half-consciously rubbing at his jaw. Barkley, an unutterably savage gleam in his eyes, was methodically leaning on the pronged weapon in his hand, jabbing, jabbing. Kinner's arms had developed a queer, scaly fur, and the flesh had twisted. The fingers had shortened, the hand rounded, the fingernails became three-inch long things of dull red horn, keened to steel hard, razor-sharp talons. McCready raised his head, looked at the knife in his hand, and dropped it. Well, whoever did it can speak up now. He was an inhuman murderer at that, in that he murdered an inhuman. I swear by all that's holy, Kinner was a lifeless corpse on the floor here when we arrived, but when it found we were going to jab it with the power, it changed. Norris stared unsteadily. Oh, Lord, those things can act! Ye God, sitting in here for hours, mouthing prayers to a God it hated, shouting hymns in a cracked voice, hymns about a church it never knew, driving us mad with its ceaseless howling. Well, speak up, whoever did it. You didn't know it, but you did the camp a favor, and I want to know how in blazes you got out of that room without anyone seeing you. It might help in guarding ourselves. His screaming, his singing, even the sound projector couldn't drown it out, Clark shivered. He was a monster. Oh, said Van Wallen, sudden comprehension. You were sitting right next to the door, weren't you? And almost behind the projected screen already. Clark nodded dumbly. He, it's quiet now. It's a dead. Mac, your test's no damn good. It was um, dead anyway, monster or man. It, it was dead. McCready chuckled softly. Boys, meet Clark. The only one we know is human. Meet Clark, the one who proves he's human by trying to commit murder and failing. Will the rest of you please refrain from trying to prove you're human for a while? I think we may have another test. A test? Connett snapped joyfully. And then his face sagged in disappointment. I suppose it's another either way you want it. No, said McCready steadily. Look sharp and be careful. Come into the ad building. Barkley, bring your electrocutor. And somebody, Dutton, stand with Barkley to make sure he does it. Watch every neighbor, for by the hell these monsters come from, I've got something, and they know it. They're going to get dangerous. The group tensed abruptly. An air of crushing menace entered into every man's body. Sharply, they looked at each other, more keenly than ever before. Is that man next to me an inhuman monster? What is it? Gary asked as they stood again in the main room. How long will it take? I don't know exactly, said McCready, his voice brittle with angry determination. But I know it will work, and no two ways about it. It depends on a basic quality of the monsters, not on us. Kinner just convinced me. He stood heavy and solid in bronzed immobility, completely sure of himself again at last. This, said Barkley, hefting the wooden-handled weapon tipped with its two sharp-pointed charged conductors, is going to be rather necessary, I take it. Is the power plant assured? 
Dutton nodded sharply. The automatic stoker bin is full. The gas power plant is on standby. Van Wall and I set it for the movie operation, and we've checked it over rather carefully several times, you know? Anything in those wires touch dies. He assured them grimly. I know that. Dr. Copper stirred vaguely in his bunk, rubbed his eyes with fumbling hand. He sat up slowly, blinked his eyes blurred with sleep and drugs, widened with an unutterable horror of drug-ridden nightmares. Gary, he mumbled. Gary, listen. Selfish from hell they came, and hellish shellfish, I, I mean, self, do I, what do I mean? He sank back in his bunk and snored softly. McCready looked at him thoughtfully. We'll know presently, he nodded slowly. But selfish is what you mean, all right. You may have thought of that, half sleeping, dreaming there. I didn't stop to think what dreams you might be having, but that's all right. Selfish is the word. They must be, you see. He turned to the men in the cabin, tense, silent men staring with wolfish eyes each at his neighbor. Selfish. And as Dr. Copper said, every part is a whole. Every piece is self-sufficient, an animal in itself. That, and one other thing. Tell the story. There's nothing mysterious about blood. It's just as normal a body tissue as a piece of muscle or a piece of liver. But it hasn't so much connective tissue, though it has millions, billions of life cells. McCready's great bronze beard ruffled in a grim smile. This is satisfying, in a way. I'm pretty sure we humans still outnumber you others, others standing here, and we have what you, your other world race, evidently doesn't. Not an imitated, but a bread-and-bone instinct, a driving, unquenchable fire that's genuine. We'll fight, fight with a ferocity you may attempt to imitate, but you'll never equal. We are human. We are real. Your imitations, false to the core of your every cell. All right, it's a showdown now, you know. You, with your mind reading, you've lifted the idea from my brain. You can't do a thing about it. Standing here, let it pass. Blood is tissue. They have to bleed. If they don't bleed when cut, then by heaven, they're phony. Phony from hell. If they bleed, then that blood separated from them is an individual. A newly formed individual in its own right. Just as they split all of them from one original are individuals. Get it, Van? See the answer, Bar? Van Wall laughed very softly. The blood, <laughs> the blood will not obey. It's a new individual with all the desire to protect its own life. That the original, the main mass from which it was split has, the blood will live and try to crawl away from a hot needle, say. McCready picked up the scalpel from the table. From the cabinet, he took a rack of test tubes, a tiny alcohol lamp, and a length of platinum wire set in a little glass rod. A smile of grim satisfaction rode his lips. For a moment, he glanced up at those around him. Barclay and Dutton moved toward him slowly, the wood-handled electric instrument alert. Dutton, said McCready, suppose you stand over by the splice there where you've connected that in. Just make sure nothing pulls it loose. Dutton moved away. Now, Van, suppose you be first on this. White-faced, Van Wall stepped forward. With a delicate precision, McCready cut a vein in the base of his thumb. Van Wall winced slightly, then held steady as a half-inch of bright blood collected in the tube. McCready put the tube in the rack, gave Van Wall a bit of alum, and then indicated the iodine bottle. Van Wall stood motionlessly watching. McCready heated the platinum wire in the alcohol lamp flame, then dipped it into the tube. It hissed softly. Five times he repeated the test. Human, I'd say, McCready sighed and straightened. As yet, my theory hasn't been actually proven, but I have hopes. I have hopes. Don't, by the way, get too interested in this. We have with us some unwelcome ones, no doubt. Van, will you relieve Barkley at the switch? Thanks. Okay, Barkley, and may I say I hope you stay with us. You're a damned good guy. 
Barclay grinned uncertainly, winced under the keen edge of the scalpel. Presently, smiling widely, he retrieved his long-handled weapon. Mr. Samuel Dut Bar! The tensity was released in that second. Whatever of hell the monsters may have had within them, the men in that instant matched it. Barclay had no chance to move his weapon as a score of men poured down on that thing that had seemed Dutton. It mewed and spat and tried to grow fangs and was a hundred broken, torn pieces. Without knives or any weapon save the brute, given strength of a staff of picked men, the thing was crushed, rent. Slowly, they picked themselves up, their eyes smoldering, very quiet in their emotions. A curious wrinkling of their lips betrayed a species of nervousness. Barclay went over with the electric weapon. Things smoldered and stank. The caustic acid Vanwall dropped on each spilled drop of blood gave off a tickling, cough-provoking fumes. McCready grinned, his deep-set eyes alight and dancing. Maybe, he said softly, I underrated man's abilities when I said nothing human could have the ferocity in the eyes of that thing we found. I wish we could have the opportunity to treat it in a more befitting manner, these things. Something with boiling oil or melted lead in it, or maybe slow roasting in the power boiler. When I think of what a man Dutton was, never mind. My theory is confirmed by, by one who knew? Well, Van Wall and Barclay are proven. I think then that I'll try to show you what I already know, that I too am human. McCready swished the scalpel in absolute alcohol, burned it off the metal blade, and cut the base of his thumb expertly. Twenty seconds later, he looked up from the desk at the waiting men. There were more grins out there now. Friendly grins, yet with all something else in the eyes. Connet, McCready laughed softly, was right. The huskies watching that thing in the corridor, Ben, had nothing on you. Wonder why we think only the wolf blood has the right to ferocity. Maybe on spontaneous viciousness a wolf takes tops, but after these seven days, abandon all hope, ye wolves who enter here. Maybe we can save time. Connet, would you step for... No, I'll try that again. Maybe we can save time. Connet, would you step for... Again, Barclay was too slow. There were more grins, less tensity still, when Barclay and Van Wall finished their work. Gary spoke in a low, bitter voice. Conant was one of the finest men we had here, and five minutes ago I'd have sworn he was a man. Those damnable things are more than imitation. Gary shuddered and sat back in his bunk. And thirty seconds later, Gary's blood shrank from the hot platinum wire and struggled to escape the tube struggled as frantically as a suddenly feral, red-eyed, dissolving imitation of Gary struggled to dodge the snake-tongued weapon Barkley advanced at him, white-faced and sweating. The thing in the test tube screamed with a tin, tiny voice as McCready dropped it into the glowing coal of the galley stove. Chapter 12 The last of it, Dr. Copper looked down from his bunk with bloodshot, saddened eyes, for of them. McCready nodded shortly. In some ways, if only we could have permanently prevented their spreading, I'd like to have even the imitations back. Commander Gary, Conant, Dutton, Clark. Where are they taking those things? Copper nodded to the stretcher Barkley and Norris were carrying out. Outside. Outside on the ice, where they've got 15 smashed crates, half a ton of coal, and presently we'll add 10 gallons of kerosene. We've dumped acid on every spilled drop, every torn fragment. We're going to incinerate those. Sounds like a good plan, Copper nodded wearily. I wonder, you haven't said whether Blair... McCready started, we forgot him. We had so much else. I wonder, do you suppose we can cure him now? If, began Dr. Copper, and stopped meaningly. McCready started a second time. Even a madman. It, it imitated Kinner and his praying hysteria. McCready turned toward Van Wall at the long table. Van, we've got to make an expedition to Blair's shack. 
Van looked up sharply. The frown of worry faded for an instant in surprised remembrance. Then he rose, nodded. Barkley better go along. He applied the lashings and may figure out how to get in without frightening Blair too much. Three quarters of an hour, through minus 37 degree cold, while the aurora curtain bellied overhead, the twilight was nearly 12 hours long, flaming in the north on snow like white crystalline sand under their skis. A five-mile wind piled it in drift lines pointing off to the northwest. Three quarters of an hour to reach the snow-buried shack. No smoke came from the little shack, and the men hastened. Blair! Barkley roared into the wind when he was still a hundred yards away. Blair! Shut up, McCready said softly, and hurry. He may be trying a long hike. If we have to go after him, no planes, the tractors disabled. Would a monster have the stamina a man has? A broken leg wouldn't stop it for more than a minute, McCready pointed out. Barkley gasped suddenly and pointed aloft. Dim in the twilight sky, a winged thing circled in curves of indescribable grace and ease. Great white wings tipped gently, and the bird swept over them in silent curiosity. Albatross, Barkley said softly, first of the season and wandering way inland for some reason. If a monster's loose, Norris bent down on the ice and tore hurriedly at his heavy, windproof clothing. He straightened his coat flapping open, a grim blue-metaled weapon in his hand. It roared a challenge to the white silence of Antarctica. The thing in the air screamed hoarsely. Its great wings worked frantically as a dozen feathers floated down from its tail. Norris fired again. The bird was moving swiftly now, but in an almost straight line of retreat. It screamed again. More feathers dropped, and with beating wings, it soared behind a ridge of pressure ice to vanish. Norris hurried after the others. It won't come back, he panted. Barkley cautioned him to silence, pointing. A curiously, fiercely blue light beat out from the cracks of the shack's door. A very low, soft humming sounded inside. A low, soft humming and a clink and clank of tools, the very sound somehow bearing a message of frantic haste. MacReady's face paled. Lord, help us if that thing has... He grabbed Barkley's shoulder and made snipping motions with his fingers, pointed toward the lacing of control cables that held the door. Barkley drew the wire cutters from his pocket and kneeled soundlessly at the door. A snap and twang of cut wires made an unbearable racket in the utter quiet of the Antarctic hush. There was only that strange, sweetly soft hum from within the shack, and the queerly, hectically clipped clicking and rattling of tools to drown their noises. MacReady peered through a crack in the door. His breath sucked in huskily, and his great fingers clamped cruelly on Barclay's shoulders. The meteorologist backed down. It isn't, he explained very softly. Blair, it's kneeling on something on the bunk, something that keeps lifting. Whatever it's working on is a thing like a knapsack. And it lifts. All at once, Barclay said grimly. No, Norris, hang back and get that iron of yours out. It may have weapons. Together, Barclay's powerful body and MacReady's giant strength struck the door. Inside, the bunk jammed against the door, screeched madly, and crackled into kindling. The door flung down from broken hinges, the patched lumber of the doorpost dropping inward. Like a blue rubber ball, a thing bounced up. One of its four tentacle-like arms looped out like a striking snake. In a seven-tentacled hand, a six-inch pencil of winking, shining metal glinted and swung upward to face them. Its line-thin lips twitched back from snake fangs and a grin of hate, red eyes blazing. Norris's revolver thundered in the confined space. The hate-washed face twitched in agony. The looping tentacle snatched back. The silvery thing in its hand, a smashed ruin of metal. The seven-tentacled hand became a mass of mangled flesh, oozing greenish-yellow ichor. The revolver thundered three times more. Dark holes drilled each of the three eyes before Norris hurled the empty weapon against its face. The thing screamed a feral hate, a lashing tentacle wiping at blinded eyes. 
For a moment it crawled on the floor, savage tentacles lashing out, the body twitching. Then it staggered up again, blinded eyes working, boiling hideously, the crushed flesh sloughing away in sodden gobbets. Barkley lurched to his feet and drove forward with an ice axe. The flat of the weighty thing crushed against the side of the head. Again, the unkillable monster went down. The tentacles lashed out, and suddenly Barkley fell to his feet in the grip of a living, livid rope. The thing dissolved as he held it, a white-hot band that ate into the flesh of his hands like living fire. Frantically, he tore the stuff from him, held his hands where they could not be reached. The blind thing felt and ripped at the tough, heavy, windproof cloth, seeking flesh, flesh it could convert. The huge blowtorch MacReady had brought coughed sullenly. Abruptly, it rumbled disapproval throatily. Then it laughed gurglingly and thrust out a blue-white three-foot tongue. The thing on the floor shrieked, flailed out blindly with tentacles that writhed and withered in the bubbling wrath of the blowtorch. It crawled and turned on the floor. It shrieked and hobbled madly, but always MacReady held the blowtorch on the face, the dead eyes burning and bubbling uselessly. Frantically, the thing crawled and howled. A tentacle sprouted a savage talon and crisped in the flame. Steadily, MacReady moved with a planned, grim campaign. Helpless, maddened, the thing retreated from the grunting torch, the caressing, licking tongue. For a moment it rebelled, squalling in inhuman hatred at the touch of icy snow. Then it fell back before the charring breath of the torch, the stench of its flesh bathing it. Hopelessly, it retreated, on and on across the Antarctic snow. The bitter wind swept over it, twisting the torch tongue. Vainly it flopped, a trail of oily, stinking smoke bubbling away from it. MacReady walked back toward the shack silently. Barkley met him at the door. No more? the giant meteorologist asked grimly. Barkley shook his head. No more. It didn't split? It had other things to think about, MacReady assured him. When I left it, it was a glowing coal. What was it doing? Norris laughed shortly. <laughs> Wise boys we are. Smash magnetos so planes won't work. Rip the boiler tubing out of the tractors and leave that thing alone for a week in this shack, alone and undisturbed. MacReady looked in at the shack more carefully. The air, despite the ripped door, was hot and humid. On a table at the far end of the room rested a thing of coiled wires and small magnets, glass tubing and radio tubes. At the center, a block of rough stone rested. From the center of the block came the light that flooded the place, the fiercely blue light bluer than the glare of an electric arc, and from it came the sweetly soft hum. Off to one side was another mechanism of crystal glass, blown with an incredible neatness and delicacy, metal plates, and a queer, shimmery sphere of insubstantiality. What is that? MacReady moved nearer. Norris grunted. Leave it for investigation. But I can guess pretty well. That's atomic power. That stuff to the left, that's a neat little thing for doing what men have been trying to do with 100 cyclotrons and so forth. It separates neutrons from heavy water, which he was getting from the surrounding ice. Where did he get all? Oh. Of course. A monster couldn't be locked in, or out. He's been through the apparatus caches. MacReady stared at the apparatus. Lord, what minds that race must have... The shimmery sphere. I, I think it's a sphere of pure force. Neutrons can pass through any matter, and he wanted a supply reservoir of neutrons. Just project neutrons against silica, calcium, beryllium, almost anything, and the atomic energy is released. That thing is the atomic generator. McCready plucked a thermometer from his coat. It's 120 degrees in here, despite the open door. Our clothes have kept the heat out to an extent, but I'm sweating now. Norris nodded. The light's cold. I found that. But it gives off heat to warm the place through that coil. He had all the power in the world. He could keep it warm and pleasant, as his race thought of warmth and pleasantness. Did you notice the light? The color of it? MacReady nodded. Beyond the stars is the answer. From beyond the stars. From a hotter planet that circled a brighter, bluer sun they came. 
McCready glanced out the door toward the blasted, smoke-stained trail that flopped and wandered blindlessly across the drift. There won't be any more coming, I guess. Sheer accident it landed here, and that was twenty million years ago. What did it do all that for? He nodded toward the apparatus. Barkley laughed softly. <laughs> did you notice what it was working on when we came? Look! He pointed toward the ceiling of the shack. Like a knapsack made of flattened coffee tins with dangling cloth straps and leather belts, the mechanism clung to the ceiling. A tiny glaring heart of supernal flame burned in it, yet burned through the ceiling's wood without scorching it. Barkley walked over to it, grasped two of the dangling straps in his hands, and pulled it down with an effort. He strapped it about his body. A slight jump carried him in a weirdly slow arc across the room. Anti-gravity, said McCready softly. Anti-gravity, Norris nodded. Yes, we had him stopped with no planes and no birds. The birds hadn't come, but they had coffee tins and radio parts and glass and the machine shop at night, and a week, a whole week, all to itself. America in a single jump, with anti-gravity powered by the atomic energy of matter. We had them stopped. Another half hour, it was just tightening these straps on the device so it could wear it, and we'd have stayed in Antarctica and shot down any moving thing that came from the rest of the world. The albatross, McCready said softly. Do you suppose, with this thing almost finished? With that death weapon it held in its hand? No, by the grace of God, who evidently does hear very well, even down here, and the margin of half an hour, we keep our world, and the planets of the system, too. Anti-gravity, you know, and atomic power. Because they came from another sun, a star beyond the stars. They came from a world with a bluer sun. And that is the conclusion of Who Goes There? Thank you very much for joining me over these past three episodes. This was a, a very special project for me. And if you have any insights into it, if you think maybe I should do more of these, if we are going to be doing more literature, or if you think maybe we should just stick to what we're good at, which is just having roundtable discussion, then so be it. I'm open for comments and criticism. Feel free to contact me or contact us about anything else on the podcast at Gold Dragon Media, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. You can also post things at Gold Dragon Media, the Facebook page. And of course, always reach out to us via Twitter or Instagram, Media Talk with a three for our Twitter handle and Gold Dragon Media for our Instagram handle as well. Once again, I've been Cam, and thanks once again for joining us here at Inconceivable Media. We'll see you next time.